When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome to the spring 22 midterm review for American Government of Civics. Um, I'll be running through the uh, review uh, that you got. Uh, so this midterm covers um, from the foundations, which we did back in January, uh, through the last unit you should have just finished up, which was Congress. Uh, so let's get rolling. So uh, the first topic on there is the Bill of Rights and specifically the First Amendment. So first off, the, the big thing for the Bill of Rights to remember is that uh, it protects your civil, civil liberties. And those are things the government cannot take away from you. So specifically on your review is the First Amendment. And the First Amendment has several freedoms that you have, speech, religion, press, assembly and petition. Those are things the government cannot take away from you. The government cannot stop you from speaking your mind about them. So if you get on social media and you blast the government for their uh, response to um, what's going on in Ukraine right now, what's going on with inflation, high gas prices, I see that all the time on social media, the government can't come and stop you from doing that. You have that right, okay? And that, that's one of your civil liberties. Same thing with religion. They can't stop you from worshiping how you want to. They also can't force you to worship uh, a state government, I mean, a state religion or something along those lines. Uh, and we can go all the way through the amendments. I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but there are protections from the government. All right. One other one, the Fourth Amendment, unlawful search and seizure. The government cannot come in and search you without a good reason. All righty. So it's all those basic civil liberties that protect you. Uh, federalism is next <clears throat> and federalism is the system of government that we are in uh, and federalism is simply where multiple systems of government have authority uh, i don't want to say control or power over us but the governments that we have in place we'll go with the main two the ones up in dc so washington dc the national government you've got the congress up there you've got the president and those people they can all make rules and laws that we're expected to follow then you get down to the state so georgia down in atlanta we have a governor we have state legislature they can make rules and laws that we have to follow sometimes they contradict each other but we have to follow um, both the federal and the state government that's federalism where governments share power uh control authority uh, whatever you want to call it over us all right the federalist versus the anti-federalist this is something you should probably be a little bit familiar with from your U.S. history days. I know it was probably a long time ago, and it was probably digital and all that kind of stuff, but it's stuff that you've heard um, not only in 11th grade, but probably also prior to that in middle school and some other times in your, your, your history, your academic career. So Federalists, remember, they were the ones that wanted to, or they were the ones that supported the big federal government. They were, the, they were okay with having the large, powerful government overseeing everything and probably not like it is today but they were okay with that government the anti-federalists were the opposite they wanted to have uh the states continue to keep control of most of the power 
So that was the big difference between the two. Um, the Anti-Federalists will finally agree to the Federalists and come on board with the Constitution when the Federalists finally add a Bill of Rights, which we just talked about. So the Bill of Rights was kind of a compromise between the two. Uh, and I'm really glad that the Anti-Federalists pushed for it because the Federalists, they always said, hey, just the government won't take away your right to a lawyer. The government won't take away your right to free speech. Uh, but it wasn't written anywhere in the Constitution, so there was no, no real guarantee that they would. So I'm glad they got it in there. All right, the formal amendment process. So uh, be sure you know the numbers. All right, so be sure uh, you know the numbers. I know it's a social studies class, but you do have to know the fractions for this one. Uh, so the first step in proposing an amendment is actually proposing an amendment, and that happens at the national level. So either in Congress, the people we already have in place, or at a national convention that we would call and people would come together, delegates from each state, and meet. But why do that when we already have a Congress in place? So typically Congress is going to propose the amendment, and then the full Congress, all 535 of them, 435 House members, 100 senators, will have a vote, and they'll say yes or no. If two-thirds of the full Congress says yes, then that amendment goes to the next step. Okay, so the first step is the national level, then it switches gears to the state level. Once the states get it, it's the state legislatures, so the people down in Atlanta, down in Tallahassee, um, and any other capital you can think of, uh, they would get it and they would vote on it. If three-fourths of the states, or 38, but know the fraction, because that's what's on the test, uh, three-fourths of the states agree to it and ratify it, then it becomes an amendment to the Constitution. Okay, so two steps, the national level, so sort of like federalism, where you have the national level that creates it and approves it, and then it goes to the states for final approval and ratification. Okay, and also remember that this is a purely legislative thing. There is no uh, president, you know, vetoing it, and there's no judicial branch that gets to review it. So it's only in the hands of the legislature. Uh, the Enlightened Thinkers. All right, so you got Locke and Montesquieu as the two big ones. There was others that you learned about, but Locke and Montesquieu are the two that are going to be and pop up on the test. So Locke is going to be a social contract person in natural rights. Uh, the social contract is his belief, and he worked with Hobbes on this, but Locke's who you need to worry about. Uh, and he is going to, to you know, write about this, this contract that people make with the government. Basically, we as citizens, we as people, could govern ourselves, but instead we give up the the uh, the right to, to govern ourselves and the ability to govern ourselves, uh, and we turn over that right to the government. The government, in turn, agrees to make rules, laws that will protect us and benefit us. And I don't want to say take care of us because that's not the government's job, but they will you know, kind of fill that role to an extent. So that's the social contract. Locke also wrote about natural rights. These are rights that every single individual, once you're born, you have natural rights. Uh, Locke wrote that they were life, liberty, and property. Okay, so life, liberty, and property. Thomas Jefferson will make the change from property to the pursuit of happiness. But those are things that every single person has. Montesquieu, uh, his big thing was the separation of powers. We need to remember that Montesquieu and these other enlightened thinkers, they came up during a time when... Um, there was kings, monarchs, and those people would make the law, they would enforce the law, and then they would judge the law, all one person. And his argument and what he wrote about uh, in his, his big paper, his big book, was the fact that we don't need to have one person with all those powers. It's not right. It's not good. And so our founding fathers 
you read up on this, and this is why we have the three branches of government. You have the Congress, uh, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, because we want to have those separation of powers. But that's Montesquieu's idea. Uh, clauses of the Constitution. So you got the commerce, the elastic slash necessary and proper, and the supremacy clause. So first off is the commerce clause. The commerce clause uh, deals with the fact that Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, had no power, no authority over commerce. States were making uh, deals with other countries. They were taxing each other's trading, tradable goods, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And so they wrote into the Constitution in Article One, Section something or other, uh, that the only people that could control commerce between states and all that sort of stuff was the federal government and Congress specifically. Article One is about Congress. The elastic or necessary and proper clause. Uh, is also in Article 1, and the Necessary and Proper Clause is the clause for Congress, it's in Article 1, uh, that states that Congress, as long as they are doing stuff within their authority in the Constitution, they can stretch those powers a little bit. That's why it's also called the Elastic Clause sometimes. So if, my, my favorite example is, is from U.S. history, and in the 1830s you had the, the the government, the federal government, created Bank of the United States. Now, if you go through the Constitution today, you're not going to see anything in there about a Bank of the United States. All right. But there is a part in there, which we just talked about, the Commerce Clause. Now, if you read through the Commerce Clause, you won't see anything about banks. But Congress back then, they read that Commerce Clause and they decided, you know what? This gives us the power and the authority to also create a bank. So they created the Bank of the United States based on the Necessary and Proper Clause, the stretching of their powers uh, from what's written into the Commerce Clause. So Necessary and Proper Clause, as long as Congress is doing stuff that's in the Constitution, they're allowed to, to interpret it, okay? So they're allowed to take a look at it, read it, and read into it. That's why it's called the Elastic Clause, because it does stretch their powers. And then the Supremacy Clause is Article 6 of the Constitution, and that is the one that states that the Constitution is number one. So when it comes down to it, if we're looking at, hey, is this, we're able to do this at a state level, a local level, whatever it might be, at the end of the day, it's got to be constitutional, okay, because that's number one. Number two is federal laws. So if it's between a federal law and a state law, the federal law is going to be on top. Okay. Uh, now, the federal government does choose to look the other way sometimes. Uh, you've probably talked about in some of your classes uh, the fact that some states have legalized marijuana, like Colorado and some other places. The federal government is choosing to look the other way, despite the supremacy clause. All right, our foundational documents, you got the Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, and the English Bill of Rights. Um, for these, you need to first off just remember they are called foundation documents for a reason. They are the foundation for our Constitution. All right. So a lot of the stuff that and I will say I shouldn't say a lot of the stuff, but items that are in these documents can be picked up uh, in our uh, Constitution. OK, uh, if I remember correctly on the test, you don't have to know really any specifics like you're not going to have to cite anything from the Magna Carta. Uh, I don't even think anybody reads that uh, anymore. But uh, just if you can remember, hey, these are documents from you know the, the 1600s when the people, the citizens, Maybe not decent, like the, the Magna Carta, it was the the nobles that kind of took power away from the king. And then each one of these documents continued to take power away from the king. Uh, you should be in good shape for the foundational documents. The Federalist Papers uh, kind of ties back into the Federalists. So when the Constitution was written and they were trying to decide, are we going to 
you know, signed this thing, there were some people that weren't on board. You know, we in, in, in class sometimes were like, oh, the Constitution was written and then it happened. It, there was a big argument about the Constitution. It wasn't just that easy. It didn't just happen like we sometimes make it seem like. There was a lot of people that were against the Constitution. So the Federalist Papers were written in support of the Constitution. It was trying to get people on board. All right. So it was reaching out to everyday citizens. Hey, here's why the Constitution is good. Okay. Fed 51 is going to go into the separation of powers. People were worried the government was going to be too big. So James Madison wrote Fed 51 where he's talking about, hey, the government's going to be separated into these three branches. That's why it's going to be good. It's going to keep the, the, the powers at bay and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, Fed 10 writes about the factions that are going to happen, the groups. So they try to predict, they try to say, here's the problems, here's the potential problems. This is why our government's going to fix those. So the Federalist Papers were used as a tool to try and convince people that the Constitution and this new federal government is a good thing. Now, the Anti-Federalists wrote their own uh, kind of rebuttal. Uh, it's, they wrote it under the name Brutus, so you might see it as the, uh, Brutus 1 and things like that. Uh, but we don't get into that in our test. All right, the types of government. So you've got the oligarchy, and I probably say that incorrectly, uh, the democracy, the confederation, and the autocracy. So the oligarchy, uh, that is the government that is run by a small group of people. All right. So um, if like here in Gwinnett, there's roughly 900,000 of us, if 15 people just ran everything and told us what to do, that'd be an oligarchy. Okay. Uh, so we're a small group of people will run things. The democracy, uh, that's how we pick our leadership, okay? Uh, remember, we go and we vote and all that kind of good stuff. We, we live in a republic, remember, uh, and a republic is the fact that we do pick elected officials. The democracy part is you know, how we go and do it. We go and vote for people. Um, so we live in a representative democracy where we as citizens get to pick people that are going to represent us, and then they make decisions uh, for us. Um, so uh, don't get that mixed. You know, people get mixed up all the time because they hear we live in a democracy. And, and to be honest with you, the republic slash representative democracy is pretty much the same thing uh, at this point. And it, it, they probably pretty much go hand in hand. So if you hear either or, it's pretty much the same thing. But you can you know, tell people, hey, we live in a republic. Pay attention to the flag or the Pledge of the Allegiance the next time you're uh, at school first period. Uh, and it's Pledge of Allegiance to the Republic for which it stands, not the democracy for which it stands. Uh, a confederation, that is a grouping okay of for us we saw it as the states okay remember the articles of confederation was our first government in this country and so the states had all the power so the confederation this is a kind of a loosely grouped set of states colonies uh, countries whatever it might be where they have power and typically there will be a small central government but the states dictate to them uh, what's going to happen. And then finally is the autocracy. That is a single ruler, uh, and they have all the power and all the authority. All right, the Constitutional Convention, you've got a couple planes there. You've got the Virginia plan and the New Jersey plan, so let's do those first because we've got to combine those eventually. Uh, remember, the Virginia plan was the plan for our Constitution, and it called for a single house or unicameral legislature with representation based on population. Now, this was upsetting to the small states. The large states that had huge populations were really happy about this because they were going to have all the power. So the little states came up with their own plan called the New Jersey plan. 
the New Jersey plan calls for equality. So let's have a single house legislature that um, has every state with the same amount of representatives. That way, no one's too powerful. Everybody's the same. So once again, we snap our fingers and boom, the great compromise happens and we're good to go. However, you know, it did take a while to get to this point. Uh, arguments, fighting, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the Great Compromise is going to combine those two plans. So it sounds real easy to us today, but it wasn't back then. The Great Compromise is going to take the Virginia Plan's idea of having a, uh, a Congress based on population, and they're going to create the House of Representatives. So the one you just talked about in Congress, your Congress, Congress section, the House of Representatives is based on population. The more people you have in your state, the more power you have. And then the New Jersey plan is going to be taken and they're going to create the Senate. That's where everybody has the same amount of representatives. So every state has two senators. Uh, and then we get into representation. So that's going to become the next issue. Uh, and we get to the three-fifths compromise. So here was the issue. Um, representation is, I mean, excuse me, population is going to play a big role in the new government. It's going to determine how many people you have as representatives in the House of Representatives. So you're going to have more power and more people. And it's also going to determine the amount of taxes you pay. So the South, they wanted the slave population to count for representation purposes. But when it came to taxes, they said, nah, that doesn't count. They don't count. And then the North was the opposite. The North wanted the slave population to count for tax purposes, but they didn't want it to count for uh, representation purposes. So eventually they settled. And once again, you know, we, we kind of fast forward here. But once uh, finally they settled on the, the three-fifths of the slave population to count for both. Uh, strict interpretation of the Constitution versus loose. So strict interpretation is going to be where it's got to be an express power in the Constitution. If it doesn't say it can happen in the Constitution, then you can't do it. Versus loose interpretation where, you know, it says it. So I read that and I interpret it this way. And so we can do this, we can do that, whatever it might be. So that's the kind of the, the strict versus the loose. Think back to Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. You know, he was a strict constructionist. And... He has a chance to buy the Louisiana Territory, but does it say in the Constitution anywhere that the government can purchase that land and all that kind of stuff? It doesn't say it anywhere. So he had to read into the Constitution. He had to kind of, you know, interpret the Constitution a little bit there and switch over to the loose side. Uh, and then the opinion on, of the Elastic Clause, well, if you're a strict interpretation, I can't talk right now, if you're a strict interpretation person, you're not going to like the Elastic Clause. You don't like the Necessary and Proper Clause because it allows Congress to read into Congress and what they can do. Uh, the Articles of Confederation and their weaknesses. So the Articles was the first government. And just a couple of the big weaknesses, uh, we've already talked about a few of those. First off, there was no president. So they fixed that by, or I shouldn't say president because they didn't call him the president at the time. But there was no figurehead. There was no leadership. Under the Articles, it was just there's a nameless Congress out there somewhere that are doing things. And there was no one for the country to look to. So they wanted to create a position where it could be that, that figurehead for the, the country. And so that's why they, they created an executive branch and the president eventually and George Washington uh, got that job. Uh, Congress couldn't tax. Uh, they couldn't control the commerce. So they created the Commerce Clause. Uh, could not raise a military. So they wrote it into Article One that Congress can raise the military and can control them. Um, there was... Uh, a couple others, but those are the big ones, and I think that should be okay for the test. Um, parliamentary versus presidential democracy, pretty much the same thing, okay? Uh, if you get into this stuff, 
um, we and England have kind of similar similar stuff. Um, so England has a parliament and a prime minister. They have a parliamentary system. We have the presidential system where we have a Congress and a president. Okay. The big difference is how the president slash prime minister is chosen. For us in America, where we have the Congress and the president, we as citizens get to pick our president. Okay. And then under the parliamentary system, parliament will pick the prime minister. Okay. So the citizens don't have as much say so in that parliamentary system. That's the big difference. That's what you need to know and understand is the, the leadership and how it's picked or how it's chosen. In a presidential one, we as citizens get to pick the president to an extent. There's electoral college and all that kind of good stuff, but we'll talk about that later. And then uh, the parliament parliamentary system, uh, the parliament, the people that are elected to parliament, they get to pick the, the prime minister. Uh, authoritarian versus democratic government. The big takeaway for this is basically us as citizens. Under an authoritarian system, we're not going to have much say so. Whoever the leader is, is probably going to dictate to us what we do and or we're not going to have any, any say so. So there's not much citizen participation under an authoritarian government versus a democratic government where all the power is supposed to flow through us as citizens. So we're going to have a lot more say so. We're going to get to pick our leadership. We're going to get to kind of dictate to our elected officials what we want to happen. Um, you know, today, if you're not happy with something, you can always write to your congressperson. All righty. Uh, the powers, you got the expressed, enumerated, concurrent, and reserved. So the expressed or enumerated, you might see them either way. Uh, I'm not sure how the test uh, breaks it down. But uh, expressed or enumerated are just written in the Constitution. You can go to the Constitution and you can read line for line what it says. So, for example, the Constitution says that the only people or the only system of government that can um, coin money is the National Congress. It says it in there. That's an expressed power. Okay. Uh, the only people that can tax, well, both states and federal government can tax, but it says in there, hey, the federal government can tax us. Okay. Uh, that leads us to concurrent. Concurrent are powers that are shared by the states and the federal government, so they can both do it. So we just said taxes. So both the state and federal government can tax us. So living here in Georgia, if you're working, you get uh, you pay a federal income tax plus you pay a Georgia state income tax. And then reserve powers, those are the powers left to the states. This comes from the 10th Amendment. Uh, as long as it's not specifically denied the states, then the states are typically allowed to do it. Okay, so it is specifically states that the only people that can coin money are, is the federal government. So that's not something that the states can do. There'll never be any Georgia money. All right. Um, declaring war. That's a federal thing. So Georgia can't declare war on the Bahamas because we want some island territory or something like that. Okay. We can't do it because it says we can't do it. However, um, I'm looking at a flag right now. So our flag, we can design our flag how we want to. It's left to us. That's a reserve power. All right, getting into Unit 3, the legislative branch there, uh, the Senate and House differences. So the Senate, you have to be uh, 30 years old. You have to be nine years a citizen. So you can be naturalized. You don't have to be a natural born citizen, but nine years you have to have been a citizen and you have to live in the state. On the House side, you got to be 25, seven years a citizen, and you have to live in the state. 
and it's also a good idea to live in the area that you're going to represent. Okay. Uh, some other differences. The Senate represents a state. House members represent a district. So Georgia has 14 districts. So that means we have 14 House members. The House is very strict, has lots of rules. The Senate does not have as many. The terms, the Senate is six years. The House is two years. All right. Uh, the Senate does all the advice and consent. So uh, President Biden just nominated a Supreme Court justice uh, to the Supreme Court. They have to go through the Senate to be approved. Okay. Um, we said the House is two years. I think the terms House is two years. The Senate is six years. Um, I think that should cover what you need to know. There's no term limits. Neither side has term. You can make a career out of being a uh, House or Senator, House member or Senator. I'm trying to think of, I think that's all the differences. If something else pops up in my head, I'll, I'll go, I'll hit on it. Uh, filibuster and cloture. Filibuster is only a Senate thing. So the filibuster is a tool that the uh, minority party on the Senate side can use uh, to try and stop bills from moving forward. They don't really kill it. You might hear it sometimes as kill a bill, but they don't really kill it. They just try to delay action and force the majority party to make changes to it uh, and things like that. It can be killed, but it's not always going to be that way. And then cloture is just how you end a filibuster. If you have 60 votes, uh, you can make a motion for a cloture, and it's just a vote to end debate. So if I'm up here talking, 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 this guy's going to shut up, uh, then you make a cloture motion. We have a vote. If you got the 60, then we're done with debate and we vote on the issue. Uh, committees, this is the workhouse, workhorse, excuse me, of the, uh, the of Congress. Both uh, sides, both House and Senate have committees. Um, they have permanent committees that are called standing committees. This is where all the work is done. Okay. Every bill that gets introduced to Congress has to go to a committee. It doesn't just go introduced, then let's vote. It has to go to a committee where they talk about it, they have meetings about it, they have hearings about it, they mark it up, they make changes, all those sorts of things, and then they have a vote on it, okay? Um, and then uh, I don't think select and joint committees are on the test, so I'm not going to spend much time. Uh, I'm not going to spend any time on those. Uh, so how a bill becomes a law, it's introduced, it goes to committee, it's worked on, it's voted on a committee, then it goes to the full house or the full Senate, and they talk about it, they vote on it, and then it goes to the other side, goes to the same process, and it comes out, and if it's the same bill, it can go to the president if it is any difference. So if the house passes one version and the Senate passes another, they have to come together in a conference committee and they have to um, figure out how can we make this the same? Because they can't send a bill that has any kind of difference to the president. They have to be the same exact bill. The redistricting process. So every 10 years, there's a census, and we just had ours done in 2020. And so the numbers are out, and they are most states will redistrict, meaning they have to adjust the House of Representative districts to adjust for population shifts. So uh, every district is supposed to represent roughly 800,000 people. Okay, so every House member is supposed to represent only about 800,000. So they're going to have to redraw the lines. Uh, that's done by the state legislatures. So the Georgia state legislature is drawing those lines right now as we speak. Actually, I think they have them drawn. They're going to have to vote on them at some point. Uh, it can lead to gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is the process where 
one party draws the lines that are going to benefit their party. Um, Senate and House leadership positions and responsibilities. So the Speaker of the House is the big one. That is the number one most powerful position in all of the, the House and all of Congress, actually. And don't, don't get mixed up. There is no Speaker of the Senate. There is a majority leader and a minority leader on the Senate side. But the person that's in charge is the president of the Senate. But they're never there because it's the vice president. So you got the Speaker of the House and they run things. They tell they tell the House who's going to speak for how long, uh, what bills are going to be pushed on the agenda, uh, and they assist with committee uh, positions and all that kind of stuff. So they are in charge. Then you got the majority leader, who's the right hand person of the Speaker of the House. Right now, the Speaker's Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and then you have um, the majority leader who's going to help them out. The minority leader doesn't really do much in the House because they don't have much power. And then you got whips. Whips are the people that are going to be really the assistants to the, the leadership. Uh, they're going to round up votes. If someone in the party is not voting the way they think they should, they might go talk to them. They're going to get counts, decide to see how many people are voting which way, so they can decide if they need to get other votes and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they're going to be the go-between between, between uh, the regular rank-and-file members of the House and the Senate, and they're going to uh, go take that information to the, the leadership. On the Senate side, you got the majority leader who kind of runs the, the Senate, although they are supposed to work with the uh, minority leader. We've kind of gotten away from that, though, and the majority leader kind of really dictates what's going to happen uh, with the agenda on the Senate side. And then they have the whips that does the same stuff. OK, uh, lobbying is something that is done by interest groups typically, although it can be businesses and corporations and things like that. Uh, lobbying is where interest groups will have these people that will go and talk to Congress people about issues. Okay. So let me take a quick break. So back to lobbying. Uh, this is where interest groups have an issue. Let's say it's the NRA. Most people know the NRA is gun rights and things like that. So there is a bill that's been introduced into the House that is going to limit uh, how many guns you can own or something like that. The NRA is going to be concerned there. Okay. So they're going to have their lobbyists go talk to the Congress people on the committees that we talked about earlier and try and convince them to either kill that bill or make changes to it and those sorts of things. Okay. Uh, so lobbying is a job to try and get people in Congress to make adjustments to the policies that are out there. All righty. Uh, your biggest two tools is your ability to raise money for these Congress people and your connections. Uh, if you know people and can get in with the Congress, Congress people, then you're in pretty good shape. Finally, the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment. Uh, the 16th Amendment is one of the worst amendments ever created. It is the income tax. It allows Congress to tax our income. I hate it, but I'm not going to go off on that. And then the 17th Amendment is the one that allows us to directly elect our senators. So in years past, we as citizens, and this was a long time ago, we as citizens uh, would pick our state legislatures who would in turn pick our, 
our, our national senators. So we had no say so. The 17th Amendment came along, though, around the progressive era, back to your U.S. history stuff. And uh, it allowed us to pick out our senators. So now we get to go and elect our senators. And we have an election for our state senator, Raphael Warnock, coming up in 2022. So go vote. Whoever you vote for, whether it's Democrat or Republican, does not matter. Go vote. That's all that matters is that you express uh, your voice that way. Okay. Uh, and just real quick, because some people might remember it, Raphael Warnock is running. He ran in 2020. Okay, and some people are going to get confused because, well, he hasn't served in six years. We need to remember that that seat was up for election in 2022 because they served six-year terms. Johnny Isaacson won the seat. He retired because he was sick. He since passed away. When that happens, the state governor gets to pick the replacement. So Kemp picked Kelly Leffler because she was picked. She had to run in the next available election, which was 2020. She ran against Raphael Warnock. Raphael Warnock ended up defeating Kelly Loeffler, so he won that seat. Well, now he has run again in 2022 because that seat is now up for re-election. So if he wins, then he'll get the full six-year term. If a Republican wins, then whoever that is will get the full six-year term. And they won't have to run again until 2028. Is my math right? 2022? I hate math. All right, anyways, whatever. So just so you don't get confused. All right, guys, uh, that is the review. If you have questions or concerns, want to... Uh, Ask me questions. If you're in my class, you can always hit me up on Remind or email. Uh, if you're not, want to follow chhsgov underscore civics on Twitter, uh, you can feel free to follow and then uh, ask me a question there, and, I'll full, and I will respond to you as quickly as possible. All right, guys, best of luck on your midterms, and take care. Bye-bye.